Last week, President Biden authorized the bombing of Syria. But most Americans don't know that the U.S. military is actually occupying vast parts of that country. Why is this happening? What is the real reason that the United States is at war with Syria? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We can do this show with you, but we cannot do it without you. Please subscribe today. Last week, President Joe Biden announced the bombing of the country of Syria. And there was a great deal of analysis, commentary on the fact that Biden, in spite of the fact that he was running against Donald Trump and denounced Donald Trump as a profound evil force, had in fact continued his policy. We can all remember back in April 2017, just a couple months after Donald Trump took office. And while he was having dinner with the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, uh, at Mar-a-Lago, he told the Chinese president, I just authorized the bombing of Syria. And in fact, in April 2017, under Trump's orders, the Pentagon dropped 59 cruise missiles on the country of Syria. And it was very, very interesting at the time, a great number of President Trump's critics from the Democratic Party, including in the pro-Democratic Party media, at that time said, well, President Trump is acting presidential. You know, now that he was dipping his hands in the blood of the people of another targeted country, he was really acting presidential. And and anti-Trump criticism within the establishment circles was muted for a few days. But of course, they overcame that. But here we had Joe Biden, now the president of the United States, announcing the first military action, at least the one we know about, by the U.S. government, another bombing of Syria. So people said, well, look, that shows that in spite of all of the anti-Trump fulminations, the Biden administration as an imperialist government is basically continuing the same policy. Yes, that is true. But what people don't know is, and I think this is true for most Americans, what they don't know is that the U.S. Pentagon, the U.S. military, including mechanized units, are occupying vast parts of Syria, and they've been occupying the country for years. So yes, Biden bombed as Trump bombed, but more importantly, the U.S. is still there illegally occupying a country in spite of the fact that the sovereign government, the government represented at the United Nations, The Syrian government is demanding that they leave. They won't leave. Anyway, let's just go over why the U.S. is actually in Syria. What's the real reason? 
We're going to take a deeper dive here. We're going to look back at U.S. policy in Syria for the past 15 years, but also put it in the context of the different stages or phases of U.S. imperialist strategy towards the Arab world, towards the Middle East, towards this resource-rich region where two-thirds of the world's oil comes from. We're going to do that in this show. But first, let's frame the discussion. Here we were one week ago, Joe Biden saying, I'm doing the presidential thing. I'm bombing other countries. He's been president for less than a month, or just over a month, I should say, and Joe Biden has now ordered his first military strike of his presidency. The targets were Iranian-backed Iraqi militia based in eastern Syria, just across the Iraqi border. Yeah, so here we have it, the American people learning the president of the United States is bombing Syria. Now, I would have to say most of Biden's supporters, you know, those who voted for Biden, and certainly within the Democratic Party establishment, they didn't blink at all. They were like, yeah, of course the U.S. is bombing Syria, as if, you know, that's the sort of inherent right of any U.S. government. But again, how many Americans actually know that the United States is continuing to militarily occupy huge parts of Syria? Here's an article from the Army Times back in September 2020. I don't remember this being discussed at all in the presidential election. The headline is, U.S. sends mechanized troops back to Syria. Then it's a picture of all these U.S. armored vehicles. Bradley fighting vehicles have headed back into eastern Syria, the Pentagon announced Friday, a move that comes after a tense encounter with Russian forces left four U.S. troops lightly injured last month. The return of mechanized units also comes as the U.S. military deployed Sentinel radar and increased the frequency of fighter jet patrols over U.S. forces in that part of Syria, according to U.S. Central Command spokesman Navy Captain Bill Urban. Quote, these actions are a clear demonstration of U.S. resolve to defend coalition forces in eastern Syria and to ensure that they are able to continue their defeat ISIS mission without interference. Uh, Okay, the U.S. is not defeating ISIS in northeastern Syria because ISIS is not fighting in northeastern Syria. ISIS has been defeated. ISIS was not defeated by the U.S. military. Trump always proclaimed that it was the U.S. that did that. That's not true. It was a combined operation by the Syrian military. The Syrian military lost 150,000 fighters in the long war to defeat ISIS and the other Al-Qaeda resistance forces, the rebels also backed by the United States, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia since 2011. So there was the Syrian military. They did most of the fighting. Then there were militias, and I believe also Iranian military forces were involved in that operation against ISIS. General Qasem Soleimani, who was assassinated by Trump a year ago, January, when he arrived in Baghdad airport for peace talks with the Iraqi government. He was leading that fight against ISIS in Syria and in Iraq. Then you had, of course, uh, forces from Hezbollah in nearby Lebanon, which borders with Syria. They were fighting against ISIS. And of course, there were the Kurdish forces while they were renamed the Syrian Democratic Forces, they too had been fighting ISIS and Al-Qaeda and other forces for some time. 
So ISIS is defeated in northeastern Syria. So that's not the reason the United States is there. That's a pretext. That's not the real reason. The real reason is the U.S. says we are in northeast Syria to, quote, defend Syrian oil fields from an ISIS comeback. Okay, that's a joke. It's not the real reason either, because if ISIS doesn't exist, uh, even though the U.S. says they're defending the oil fields from ISIS, not actually possible. ISIS doesn't exist there anymore. What the U.S. is doing is taking control of Syrian oil. Again, the American people have been kept completely in the dark. Yes, it's good to recognize that there's continuity between Biden and Trump in the bombing of Syria. We should denounce both, of course. But the bigger picture is that the U.S. military really in many ways behind the backs of the American people, or it doesn't have to be behind their backs. The American capitalist corporate-owned media doesn't report any of this. But, you know, the U.S. is occupying this big swath of Syria. Now, look at this article. Outgoing Syria envoy admits hiding U.S. troop numbers, praises Trump's Middle East record. Quote, we are always playing shell games, close quote, says Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, who also gives advice to President-elect Biden. We were always playing shell games to not make clear to our leadership how many troops we had there, Jeffrey said in an interview. The actual number of troops in Syria, he said, is, quote, a lot more than the roughly 200 troops Trump initially agreed to leave there in 2019. Now, let's sort of understand this. This is Trump's envoy, Jim Jeffrey, Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, special envoy to Syria, what he's saying in this article in Defense One, the magazine DefenseOne.com, you can find it for yourself, is that they were concealing even from Trump, that is the Pentagon was concealing from Trump, how many American troops were in the northeast part of Syria. He says, we were playing shell games to not make clear to our leadership, that would be the civilian branch of the government, the president of the United States, how many troops we actually had there. Jeffrey says the incident of uh, James Mattis resigning, remember James Mattis, defense secretary under Trump, resigned in December 2018, the day after Trump had said that he was going to withdraw all U.S. troops from Syria. Trump said that because Trump wanted to claim credit for the defeat of ISIS. He said, look, we've come, we've defeated ISIS, now we're going to bring U.S. troops home because mission accomplished. But of course, as I said earlier, the U.S. didn't defeat ISIS. Trump wanted to put a feather in his cap. He had his own narrow interest for wanting to proclaim victory and, quote, bring the boys home. But the Pentagon absolutely did not want to bring the boys home. They wanted to keep U.S. military forces in Syria, again, not to defeat ISIS, but to exercise dominant leverage over what happens next in Syria. Syria, which is, of course, central to the Arab world, central to the Middle East. The U.S. wants to maintain a major, or the Pentagon wants to maintain a major U.S. military presence in northeastern Syria in order to exercise domination. Again, nothing to do with ISIS. Trump had his own narrow 
reasons for wanting to claim victory and leave. But the Pentagon was like, no, we can't leave. We're not going to do that. So Mattis met the day after Trump announces that he's bringing all the troops back from Syria. And Mattis says, okay, he went to Camp David. He spent an hour with Trump, according to uh, interviews in The Atlantic with Jeffrey Goldberg, with former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike Mullen, who had had lunch with Mattis the day before he resigned, who said at the time he had no inclination at all that Mattis was going to resign. The next day, Mattis resigns after an hour-long meeting with Trump where he can't convince Trump to withdraw the U.S. troops. So Mattis, we know, resigns because he's protesting Trump's announcement to leave Syria. Okay, so there's the man from the Pentagon, James Mad Dog Mattis, saying we can't have Americans actually leaving Syria, the American military. So here's Jim Jeffrey again, the U.S. ambassador, special envoy to Syria, talking about Mattis's resignation. Again, this is in the news outlet Defense One. The order first handed down in December 2018, the order to leave Syria, led to the resignation of former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. It catapulted Jim Jeffrey, then Trump's special envoy for Syria, into the role of special envoy in the counter-ISIS fight. For Jeffrey, the incident was far less cut and dry, but it is ultimately a success story that ended with U.S. troops still operating in Syria, denying Russian and Syrian territorial gains and preventing ISIS remnants from reconstituting. Of course, you have to parse that language. What does it mean for the Syrian government to make territorial gains in Syria, meaning to reclaim a vast parts of its own territory, especially where the oil is located in Syria, in northeastern Syria? But nonetheless, what we're hearing here from Jim Jeffrey is that Yes, Trump announced the withdrawal from Syria. Yes, Mattis resigned in protest. But the fact of the matter is the Pentagon was playing a shell game with Trump anyway. They were never going to leave. They were never going to leave Syria. And here they are still in Syria 2021. Now, I want to talk about, again, why the U.S. is there. Why is the U.S. in Syria? Now, there's different theories inside the left. One theory is that the Assad government is an anti-imperialist government. It's maybe even kind of revolutionary. It has some socialist characteristics. And the U.S. wants to defeat the regime because it represents a model of economic and political development that the U.S. You know, won't tolerate. Okay, that's one theory. I frankly don't buy that theory. The Assad government has made it very clear in the past that it was willing to work with the United States. And of course, Bashar al-Assad is the president of Syria, and Syria is an independent government. The Ba'athist government there comes out of the anti-colonial project following the defeat of colonialism post-World War II. Syria was a French colony. British had control over Iraq and Egypt, and they had divided up the Middle East in the Sykes-Picot Treaty at the end of World War I between Britain and France over which colonial power would take which part of the Arab world or the Middle East and dominate it. But okay, the Assad government is an anti-colonial government and it's an independent government, and those are important facts. But 
let's not also put the Assad government on a pedestal. During the 1991 war that the U.S. waged against the Iraqi government, when it dropped hundreds of thousands of bombs and missiles on Iraq, when it imposed massive economic sanctions and you know carried out a kind of genocide against Iraq in the first Gulf War, the Syrian government was part of the imperialist coalition. Now, it wasn't Bashar al-Assad, it was his father, Hafez al-Assad, but it's the same regime, it's the same government. There are differences, of course, between father and son, but it would be a hard case to make that Bashar al-Assad is more anti-imperialist or something like that than his father's government. Also, after September 11th, the Syrian government was one of the places where the CIA, when they were kidnapping people around the world and rendering them to third countries and black sites and for torture, Syria was cooperating with the CIA during that entire period, 2001, 2002, 2003. So the U.S. had a relationship with the Assad government. It's a contradictory relationship. The thing that the Assad government could never really be was an absolute puppet of the United States. The U.S. wants puppet regimes. The U.S. wants puppet regimes like the Gulf monarchies, for instance. But to the extent that the Assad government coming as an out of the anti-colonial project was an independent government, but a collaborative government with American imperialism, at least at key times, it makes it clear that it's not because Syria is the Cuba, say, of the Middle East. That's not what's happening. So I, I reject that theory. Another theory is that the U.S. doesn't really care about who wins or loses in the Arab world as long as there's chaos, as long as there's bedlam, as long as stable governments are overthrown. Those governments don't, even if it's chaotic, even if they're just in a weakened sort of semi-paralyzed state, as is the case in Libya following the NATO destruction of the Gaddafi government in 2011, this theory argues that this is done on behalf of Israel. Israel wants to keep all of the Arab countries weak. Israel benefits from the weakening of the Arab world. Now, this theory has some merit to it because, of course, the U.S. is in lockstep with the Israeli government on most issues. And Israel really does want to weaken all of the Arab government's they wanted to destroy the Iraqi government, and it was destroyed. They wanted to destroy the Libyan government. It was destroyed. They certainly want to destroy the Iranian government, which is not an Arab government, but it's in the Middle East. It's a Muslim nation predominantly and is part of the resistance movement against Israeli operations in the Middle East, both inside of historic Palestine and inside of Lebanon and inside of Syria. So there's some merit to the theory that the U.S. doesn't actually care about having absolute puppet regimes stably exploiting those countries and their natural resources for the benefit of U.S. imperialism as long as it is beneficial to Israel. Okay, there's some merit to that argument, but I want to make the case here that the U.S. foreign policy is not dictated by the Israeli government. It may coincide with Israeli government aims and goals, but that's not what's driving U.S. foreign policy. U.S. foreign policy is driven by the imperialist interests of the United States as a global hegemon, which has in various regions of the world important geostrategic goals and operations. It has challenges and it has opportunities, 
But I don't go with the theory that Israel is driving U.S. policy. That's like, for me, the tail wagging the dog. The United States at different times has criticized Israel. Before the 1967 war, for instance, the United States condemned the Israeli-British-French operation to invade the Suez in Egypt, and the U.S. condemned the Israeli government. The U.S. really becomes joined at the hip with the Israeli government after the 1967 war. And I'm going to talk about why that change happened. But again, it's not because Israel's policy is driving American policy. Yes, the Israeli lobby is strong. I know all that. It's not a small lobby. It's an important lobby. But U.S. imperialism is the center of world imperialism and the center of a world imperialist system. Its policies are dictated by what it perceives to be imperialist interests, meaning U.S. hegemonic interests in the Middle East and around the world. I want to go now to what I believe is the real reason the U.S. is in Syria. The real reason the U.S was committed to taking down the Assad government, why it went to war in Libya in 2011, why it invaded Iraq in 2003 and made sure, unlike the 1991 war, which allowed the Saddam Hussein government to remain in place after it had been decimated and evicted from Kuwait, which it intervened, invaded in August 1990. That's another story. We can talk about that in another episode. But I want to kind of go right to the what I consider to be the nub of the issue. Why is the U.S. really at war in Syria? And why was it at war in Iraq? And why was it at war against Libya? And why is it always in a confrontational mode or almost always with Iran? It's not that these governments are the bastions of anti-imperialism such that they actually, in an absolute way, deprive the United States of what it needs to do or wants to do in the Middle East. It's a little bit different than that. When we think about why the U.S. fought the war in Korea, we can talk about that. Why did it fight in Vietnam? In both cases, the U.S. went to war in Korea and Vietnam because if it had not gone to war, they knew that the movements led by communist parties, in the case of Korea or Vietnam, would win. In the case of Korea, there was a standoff and a stalemate after three years of war, So the U.S. could not conquer North Korea, but North Korea could not fully liberate South Korea as it had said it was its intention. So there was a stalemate. In Vietnam, the U.S. could not defeat the National Liberation Front and the government of North Vietnam led by Ho Chi Minh and the Communist Party. And so it was finally ousted. But in Korea and Vietnam, those were wars to stop the countries from becoming fully socialist or fully communist. Again, those were offensive wars on the part of imperialism, but they were reacting to a real, what they considered a real threat to the empire, which was the takeover of Southeast Asia or the Korean Peninsula by communist movements that were antagonistic to imperialism and aligned with the Soviet Union. But in the case of Iraq, in the case of Syria, in the case of Libya, not so much. Yes, they're independent. Yes, they come out of the anti-colonial project. But all of those governments, Iraq under Saddam, Syria, Libya, at different times were more than willing to play ball with U.S. imperialism. So I want to try to go deeper and try to understand if that's the case, if the U.S. has governments that are actually willing to collaborate with the U.S., 
as Saddam did when he invaded Iran right after the Iranian Revolution, why is the U.S. committed to endless war there? Okay, I'm going to now start trying to go over my own or our own conception of what's going on here. Before we do that, I want to play an audio clip. It's General Wesley Clark. He's being interviewed by Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! It's more than 15 years ago. General Wesley Clark was the NATO commander during the 1999 NATO war against Yugoslavia. This guy is a real imperialist. Wesley Clark oversaw the destruction of the last remaining socialist government in Central Europe, and that's Yugoslavia. That war, which lasted from March until June 1999, was carried out under the banner of protecting Muslim minority people in the Serbian province of Kosovo. That, of course, is just a pretext. Uh, But the U.S. and NATO, under Clark's leadership, dropped 28,000 bombs on Yugoslavia. And finally, Yugoslavia basically surrendered in the face of what was an imminent NATO land invasion, ground invasion in June 1999. And Kosovo became occupied by NATO and became, quote, an independent country. And ultimately, that led to the final denouement, the dismemberment of the last socialist country in Europe, Yugoslavia. Now, so I wanted to say all that because Clark is not a progressive person, but he's being interviewed by Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! And I want to have our audience here listen to the clip, and then I want to use that as a context for why I think the United States is at endless war against these countries in the Middle East. Let's listen. About 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz, I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to come in. You got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision. We're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq. Why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> He said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information connecting Saddam to al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. So that's after September 11th. Wesley Clark, again, not progressive, is in the Pentagon. He's meeting with his buds. This is the week after September 11th. Now, it's quite clear that the September 11th attack was not carried out by Iraq, okay? Because Al-Qaeda was labeled as the responsible party. Osama bin Laden essentially admitted to responsibility 
Osama bin Laden was one of the spokespersons for Al-Qaeda. Earlier in, in 1979, 1980, 81, 82, Osama was a hero for the Americans because he was leading the Mujahideen opposition to the socialist government in Afghanistan. And then that socialist government had the support of Soviet military forces in the struggle. The CIA backed the opposition. So Osama had been a friend of America. Then he became an enemy of America. He was a leader of Al-Qaeda. He was living in, stationed in, had guest status in Afghanistan. But the Iraqi government, the Ba'athist government, was a secular government. It rejected Islamicism as a political party. In fact, it was at war against the Islamic political parties in Iraq. Most of Saddam's domestic repression following his suppression of the communists uh, when he came to power in 79-80 was really directed against the Islamic parties. So Iraq was not a friend of Al-Qaeda. Iraq was not about September 11th. But here's Wesley Clark talking a week after the September 11th attacks you know, thousands of Americans dead. The U.S. government is getting ready for war. So he meets with the Pentagon. He meets with his friends. And then he comes back and meets with them again. And they say, oh, no, we're going to war against Iraq, even though Iraq had nothing to do with September 11th. And then we're going to have, he says, it's even worse. We're going to go to war against Libya, Syria, Lebanon, Sudan, Somalia, and Iran. We're going to take out all of these governments. Now, these governments again, had nothing to do with September 11th. All of them, Somalia didn't actually even have a government by that time, but it had been ruined by American interventionist policies. But those governments were not pro-Al-Qaeda, but why were they going to be taken out? And again, I just want to remind our audience, I'm saying that these governments and these movements were to some extent anti-imperialist. They grew out of the anti-colonial project following World War II. They were not part, they were not puppets of American imperialism, but nor were they like revolutionary communist anti-imperialists. And at different times they did business with and worked with the United States. So they weren't implacable foes of U.S. imperialism. So again, why is the Pentagon adopting immediately this attitude, we're going to take out all these governments? This gets to the nub of the issue. This gets to the heart of what's going on and helps all of us understand what's really driving U.S. policy. Obviously, September 11th gave a pretext to the Pentagon to do what it had wanted to do for some time, and that was to wipe out any independent government in the Middle East in particular, but also in other places, any government that had shown its ability to survive as an independent regime from U.S. imperialism because it had previously enjoyed the support of the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc. That was the reality of the post-World War II era when the national liberation movements achieved anti-colonial status and became independent governments. It wasn't a unipolar world. U.S. imperialism and its allies in NATO and its ally in Japan were constrained by the existence of a socialist camp. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the country that had the largest landmass in the world, had an ally in the People's Republic of China after the 1949 revolution. That was the most populated country in the world. One out of every four humans was Chinese. There was also revolutions in Vietnam. There was the revolution in Korea. 
the governments in Eastern and Central Europe were aligned with the Soviet Union. National liberation movements and the independent, what became independent governments in the Middle East and elsewhere came into existence in spite of the colonial world's hostility to them when the U.S. couldn't fully sanction them, couldn't completely dominate them because they could turn to another place. And that other place was the socialist camp. That other place was this giant part of the world which had its own internal economic planning, its own resources, its own military capacity. It provided diplomatic support. And so all of the governments in the Middle East that were independent, and this was true about the other independent governments, weren't completely dominated by U.S. imperialism because it was not a unipolar world. It was a world marked by this global class struggle between two rival camps And even the independent non-communist governments, they could sort of play the two camps against each other. They could have independent leverage. Uh, There was a lot of that going on. But ultimately, they knew that if the U.S. imposed terrible sanctions like the U.S. imposed on Cuba, say, when it had a revolution in 1959, those countries could turn, as Cuba turned, to the Soviet Union. But by 2001, the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc was gone. And the eradication of the socialist bloc, in addition to whatever hardships and problems that caused for the people inside the former Soviet Union and inside the countries of the former Eastern Europe, life expectancy had declined precipitously by six years, in six years in the Soviet Union. Massive poverty was introduced into the country. The social and economic rights that people had Uh, were eviscerated, the rise of the Russian oligarchs, the billionaires who sort of stole the previously publicly owned property. All of that misery befell the people in the former Soviet Union in Eastern and Central Europe. I mean, years later, those economies got back on their feet to some extent. But in addition to the misery in those countries, the big change in world politics was that these independent governments lost their key ally, the thing that gave them leverage against U.S. imperialist hegemony. And the U.S. decided right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, actually in the last years when the Gorbachev government was still in power and the Soviet Union still existed, but Gorbachev was signaling that there was going to be a new non-confrontational orientation towards Western imperialism. Gorbachev basically said, take down the Berlin Wall, give Eastern and Central Europe back to Western imperialism. Soviet troops were withdrawn for those countries. Gorbachev had expected that maybe the U.S. would reciprocate and, and allow the Soviet Union to integrate into the world economy as it had allowed the integration of China into the world economy starting in 1979, 1980. That was a fool's errand on the part of Gorbachev. The U.S. just thought, oh, they're weakened. We can go for it. And of course, all of the counter-revolutionaries inside the Soviet Union and Eastern and Central Europe, with the support of Western imperialism, finally carried out the destruction of those governments, the counter-revolutionary overthrow of them. But that's when the United States now felt, look, we are the unipolar world. I had mentioned in the beginning of this discussion about how Secretary of State Mattis had resigned following Trump's decision or announcement that he was withdrawing troops from Syria in 2018, December 2018. Now, there's an important story by Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic. It's an interview with former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mike Mullen, Admiral Mike Mullen, 
about his discussions with Mattis around the time of his resignation. And I want to read to our audience here one paragraph from that article. Here's Mullen talking about why Mattis resigned. He said, Mattis was a strong believer in the need for alliances. He says, quote, I had no idea that he was on the precipice of resigning, Mullen told me, quote, but I know how strongly he believes in alliances. The practical reasons become moral reasons. Most of us believe that we've moved on as a country from being able to do it alone. Listen to this. We may have had dreams about this in 1992 or 1993, but we've moved on. We have to have friends and supporters, and we're talking about Jim Mattis. He's not going to change his views on this. He's not going to leave friends and allies on the battlefield. So Mullen's comment, very, very, very revealing, because what he's saying is that all of us had this dream in 1992, 1993, that we really didn't need any alliances because the Soviet Union had been destroyed, the socialist bloc was gone, we could start what became the neocon policy, unilateral interventionism, imposing structural adjustment all over the third world, economic sanctions on any government that dared to retain its independence, and being willing to invade and invade, bomb, occupy countries all over the world. We believe we could do it by ourselves in 1992-93, But why, in 2019, when he's conducting this interview with Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic, is Admiral Mike Mullen now saying, as Mattis was also talking about, we may have had dreams about this in 1992 or 93, meaning going it alone, but we've moved on, because the U.S. tried to go it alone. The U.S. invaded Iraq. The U.S., you know, most of the world, including its allies, rejected the U.S. invasion. Well, what happened in Iraq? The U.S. actually lost the war in Iraq. The U.S. was defeated by the armed resistance. In fact, the only way the war could sort of be gradually brought to an end was the U.S. started paying Iraqi resistance fighters, paying them a monthly salary not to shoot at Americans. That was the deal. Here, don't shoot us and we'll give you a monthly stipend at a time when the after the Baathist army had been torn apart, had been illegalized, you had all of these people with fighting capabilities Uh, who had war experience, they were joining the Iraqi resistance. The Americans started paying them not to shoot at them. So what Mullen is basically saying and what Mattis represents is that U.S. imperialism recognized that there were limits to its unipolar authority. By going to war over and over again in the Middle East, it allowed Russia to get back on its feet. It allowed China to grow. It allowed, in fact, Russia and China to cement a new relationship. The U.S. was so preoccupied and bogged down in losing wars in the Middle East that it no longer had the arrogant assumption that it could do it completely alone. And the argument against Trump was that Trump was treating the allies rudely and also that Trump, for his own narrow electoral purposes, wanted to claim victory and leave Syria when the U.S. recognized in fact, that it had to stay in Syria. Otherwise, Syria would become truly independent again with the support of Russia, with Iran, and parts of the Lebanese political establishment, especially those aligned with Hezbollah. So we have a situation where Mullen and Mattis recognize the U.S. You know, doesn't and can't actually completely have a unipolar domination over the world. 
Uh, there's a lot more to say about this. Of course, Obama tried to reorient U.S. policy away from the Middle East by entering into negotiations with Iran and announcing his so-called pivot to Asia in 2011. That was a geostrategic move to try to overcome the losses the U.S. had suffered by being bogged down in these losing military operations. Again, we'll talk more again about that at another time. But that, I think, sort of puts a context to what's going on. The United States never believed before the collapse of the Soviet Union that it could take down these independent governments. It had to, at different times, you know, sort of negotiate with them or maneuver with them or use them or manipulate them as the U.S. manipulated Saddam Hussein into invading Iran following Iran's revolution that toppled the U.S. dictator Shah in 1979. But the United States is still committed, even though it knows it can't do it alone, it's committed to taking out independent governments. And that is the exercise. It's kind of like the continuation of a policy based on extreme imperialist hubris and arrogance that was given birth in 1991, 92, 93, following the collapse of the Soviet Union. But again, there are limitations to American power. The U.S. has, in fact, lost the war in Syria. It's still occupying parts of Syria. It won't leave Syria. It's there illegally defying all international law, which says that you can't be in another country with your military unless you're at the invitation of that government. And Syrians, Syria's government is clearly not inviting the U.S. They're demanding that they leave or unless you have the sanction of the Security Council. And the Security Council, in which both Russia and China have a veto, is never going to give the U.S. authorization to occupy the country of Syria. So the U.S. has lost the war, meaning the effort to actually destroy the Syrian government as it succeeded in destroying the Saddam government in Iraq and the Gaddafi government in Libya. They haven't succeeded, but they're not going to leave. That's going to be continued leverage. Now, I want to sort of move toward the end of this discussion by reminding our audience, too, that this limitation on, on American imperialism, the fetters that American imperialism has, the fantasies that they had about unipolar domination have given way to the rise of Russia and the rise of China and other important configurations in the world. Certainly, Iran is still retains a lot of strength. It's a strong country. It's not going to be browbeaten by the United States as trying to negotiate with the United States, but it's not going to be toppled by the United States. But the other important restraint on U.S. imperialism is the sentiment of the people in the United States. And one of the reasons we wanted to do this show today is that the American people don't actually know the U.S. is in Syria. But there were times, I want to go back to 2013, when it looked like the U.S. was going to go into a major war in Syria, not just like having the occupation of part of Syria, especially the oil-rich part in the northeast part of the country, but there was actually going to be a war. There was a sector of the U.S. establishment led by John Kerry, who was then Obama's Secretary of State, cheerleaded on by the Washington Post, You know, that was really saying, look, we're losing the war in Syria. We have to intervene directly. They used the so-called chemical weapons use by the Assad government as the pretext. That wasn't true. None of that was true. Obama didn't want to intervene. He was afraid of a major new war in the Middle East. So he had said, look, I'm establishing a red line. 
If Syria crosses the red line, then they're going to get it. But the red line is if Syria uses chemical weapons, we're going to cross the red line. We will intervene. Now, of course, Syria was already winning the war by 2013. They had the support of the Russians who had intervened decisively. They had the support of Hezbollah. They had kept the Syrian Arab army together. Again, it was a majority Sunni army, even though, and because Syria is a majority Sunni country, even though the Assad government was not Sunni and the U.S. hoped that that would be able to split Syria apart, the Syrian army remained intact. So it had the army intact. It had support from Russia, support from Iran, support from Hezbollah. The U.S. was losing the war. And so Obama didn't want to risk a major new war. He was saying, let's pivot towards Asia. So he said, look, here's the red line. Don't cross it. If you do, you're going to get in trouble. So then John Kerry, representing this other sector of American imperialism, said, ah, the the Syrians use chemical weapons. Now, why would Syria use the one weapon that would invite U.S. imperialist intervention at the time that it was already winning the war? It just doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make sense. And it's not true. They didn't use chemical weapons because they didn't need chemical weapons. But anyway, Kerry went on this campaign in August 2013, said the Syrians crossed the red line. We have to go to war. And this drumbeat for war was picked up everywhere within the imperialist establishment. And at that moment, anti-war sentiment, when it looked like the U.S. was actually going to go to war again, manifested itself in so many different ways, not just in the United States, but in Britain. In Britain, the House of Commons said, well, if the U.S. goes to war against Syria, we're not." they voted no, we're not going to support the U.S. That would mean the U.S. would be truly unipolar because it wouldn't even have their lapdog British imperialist puppets to go with them. So the British people were like, no, we're not doing another Iraq, no. And the British House of Commons voted no. And then people started calling Congress people, Democrats, Republicans, calls were like 100 to 1, don't do this. The Answer Coalition, and I'm the national coordinator of the Answer Coalition, we were having demonstrations all over the country. And pressure was building on Obama. Are you, going to, are you going to listen to the people? Are you going to listen to your own fear that this is a huge major mistake to go to war against Syria meant to go to war against Iran? It meant a regional war. It would be even bigger than the Iraq war. Or are you going to listen to the war makers? And on August 31st, Obama announced that he was going to make a major announcement at a press conference at the Rose Garden outside the White House. That's the outside garden area right along Pennsylvania Avenue. The Answer Coalition called a demonstration for a couple hours before this scheduled announcement at noon. We had a big crowd there. I mean, not as big as during the Iraq war, the lead up where we had hundreds of thousands, but we had a big crowd outside. And noon came and we were chanting, no war against Syria, no war against Syria. And all the media was assembled in the Rose Garden outside the White House. And Obama didn't come out at noon. And he didn't come out at 12.15. And there was this long delay. And it was clear that there was a debate going on inside the White House. And Obama was uncertain about whether to listen to Kerry and all of this pressure. And the White House media, the press corps, started reporting, well, there's no press conference going on, but we're hearing this chanting over our live feed, no war against Syria, no war against Syria. So here you have people calling Congress, you have the British saying no new war against Syria, we're not going to join with it. 
Obama has hesitation and uncertainty. He's not willing to go with the Warhawks. And finally, finally, he comes out at the Rose Garden and he says, I'm for a limited attack on Syria. And of course, there would be no such thing at that time. There would have been a major regional war, but I'm going to let Congress decide. So he punted. He punted. And, you know, John Kerry and the Warhawks, Hillary Clinton, the Washington Post, they were enraged with Obama. They were enraged that Obama had hesitation and decided to punt. And Obama knew full well, he knew full well that if it was up to Congress, Congress would not vote yes because the pressure on Congress was too great. I want to play some audio clips. This was a discussion with John Kerry after the fact, years later with Face the Nation. He was then Obama's Secretary of State, and he talks about his own thinking and what a setback it was. Again, this was the section of U.S. imperialism that feels that in spite of all of the defeats in in Iraq and the inability of U.S. imperialism to have complete hegemony, that they still should exercise this kind of unipolar interventionist orientation. Obama, in this case, won the day. John Kerry was extremely upset. But I'm going to play four or five of these short audio clips from this Face the Nation interview. And it really helps you understand the thinking of imperialism. Again, this is uh, Margaret Brennan from Face the Nation interviewing John Kerry in 2018, five years after the fact. Correct. And I supported President Trump's uh, response to those partially. I, re- I, I supported the use of force, but I don't support just a one-off where you drop a few bombs Okay, so that's John Kerry. He's being interviewed by Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation five years after he lost the debate in the White House about going to war against Syria. And he says, yeah, I support Trump dropping those bombs uh, right after he took office in April 2017, but it shouldn't just be a one-off, meaning, like, why a few bombs? Let's play the next audio clip. You thought President Obama should have done that, too. Yes, that's correct. You were sent around the world to rally support for other countries to stand with the United States to say that this red line on use of chemical weapons needed to be enforced. How difficult was that for you, given that the president blinked? He decided not to go through with those military strikes. Congress was clearly not going to give him the authority that he wanted. But you thought that the president could have gone ahead with those strikes. You were in the book, you write about being surprised when he called you and said, I'm going to go to Congress. I was surprised. I thought we were going to go forward. I thought that weekend was the weekend. I expected the phone call to be telling me that he decided we were striking that night or whatever was going to happen. And it wasn't. This is so important to understand. What John Kerry is saying is he expected when Obama called, they was like going forward with the war against Syria. Again, it would have been a major war. They had decided Obama, like Obama did with Libya, where originally he was hesitant about the NATO bombing of Libya. He basically succumbed to the demands of Hillary Clinton and the Washington Post who were condemning Obama as being the, quote, passive president. They were kind of ridiculing Obama for being weak. And then he said, okay, let's do it. Let's bomb the hell out of Libya. They went to war against Libya. And, you know, we know what happened after the fact. I mean, Libya has the return of slave markets for black Africans in Libya. That's what American imperialism would call liberation, apparently. But anyway, Kerry thought, okay, Obama capitulated on Libya in the bombing of Libya in 2011, 
which ironically began, by the way, on March 19, 2011, exactly eight years to the day after the U.S. shock and awe invasion of Iraq under Bush. But Kerry's telling Margaret Bennett, I was so surprised. He knew Congress wasn't going to vote for it, so he knew actually people were against it. He thought Obama was going to do it. So what changed? What changed is there was massive mobilization around the world in Britain, in the United States, against this looming war. And at the same time, the president had his own hesitations. So that combination of factors, it was like one of those rare moments when grassroots opposition actually actually becomes a factor in the decision-making of policymakers. Obama wanted to find a way not to do it. That massive opposition to a new war, a major war with Syria, a major regional war in the Middle East, gave him the way out. He could say, let Congress decide, knowing Congress would never do it. I want to play another audio clip from that same very, very revealing interview with John Kerry and Margaret Brennan. We paid a price. And, and all the explanations and everything else doesn't change the perception. And perceptions sometimes are very telling in diplomacy and politics. You, you paid a price. Do you mean the red line moment has come to, for many critics of President it's, Obama, define his foreign policy and define it as weak, as not backing up a threat? For many people, that's exactly what I ran into. And I ran into that in the Middle East. It was something that I had to push back against for a long period of time. Uh, and that's why I say perceptions, but perceptions matter. It's so revealing, right? I mean, the reason that he thought it was a mistake for Obama not to bomb is that the rest of the world would think the Americans won't follow through with all of their threats to bomb. I mean, this is the logic of gangsterism. This is the logic of, you know, the mafia. This is the logic of imperialist gangsterism. What happened? What was the great sin that Obama committed by not going to war with Syria? It allowed people in the Middle East to have the perception that the United States could be moved by opposition when it had promised to carry out military operations. I mean, it's so revealing about the real thinking of the imperialists. John Kerry, who's now in the Biden administration, all of these people, they don't care that hundreds of thousands of people might die in Syria or that American troops, if they were sent into battle, would also be killed or wounded. They don't care about that. They care about the perception that American imperialism, this gangster force, might be perceived as something less powerful than it lets on. Again, here's Kerry moaning about the failure to go to war against Syria. Again, a war that would have taken so many lives. Assad is in the driver's seat today because of what Russia and Iran, uh, Hezbollah, uh, have done. So we have an open wound. Yes, a global, an international community owned open wound. What a disgusting imperialist pig. I mean, the open wound isn't actually the wound of human beings who would have been seriously wounded or killed during a major war against Syria. The wound is that President Assad is in the driver's seat, he said. Well, I'm sorry, John Kerry. I'm sorry to say this to the imperialist establishment, but when you're the president of a sovereign country and that country is represented at the United Nations, aren't you supposed to be in the driver's seat? Isn't it your country? And how is it that U.S. imperialism and these imperialist spokespeople 
like John Kerry, or all of them, in fact, actually talk like this, and they talk with Margaret Brennan and Face the Nation, like if you're a real journalist and you really like are thinking about what he's saying, how could you not challenge him and say, I'm sorry, former Secretary of State John Kerry, what do you mean Assad is still in the driver's seat? I mean, he is the president of Syria. He is in Syria. He is the government of Syria. It's recognized by the United Nations. The United Nations does not say anywhere in its charter that you, John Kerry, the U.S. state, the president of the United States, has the actual legal right to determine who the government of these different countries should be. So I want to try to wrap up. I mean, we've tried to cover quite a bit of territory. The rest of the month, we're going to talk about the U.S. invasion of Iraq. This is you know, the anniversary month, 2003, that changed politics in the Middle East, that changed global politics. We're going to continue to examine the evolution of U.S. foreign policy, not simply towards Syria and not simply towards Iraq, but towards the entire rest of the world that is seeking to be independent and free from the domination of U.S. imperialism. And I think that the thing that we want to take away here is that when we, we progressive people, people who organized against Donald Trump, we have to recognize that Joe Biden isn't simply continuing some parts of Trump's bad foreign policy, that Joe Biden, like Donald Trump, who was temporarily president, is nothing other than the CEO of the state. And the state, in the case of the American government, represents not the interests of the working class, not the interests of the people, not the interests of the poor. Working class people have no interests in Syria. No interest in Lebanon, no interest in Iran, no interest in these different countries. Those are capitalist corporations that have interests, have investments. And the U.S. military installations, a thousand bases around the world in more than 150 countries, that's not representing the American people. That's representing American capitalist corporate interests. So we have to recognize that the problem isn't that Biden is continuing some of Trump's policies. The problem is that whoever is the president of the state, of this state, of this government, is the representative of U.S. imperialism. And U.S. imperialism in particular is addicted to militarism. It's addicted to endless war. None of that will change without a profound social transformation inside the United States. For the United States to become a country of peace means the United States has to get a brand new system. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.